And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Election Bridge. It's Monday. The Insiders are next. And welcome to another week. It's week three of the election campaign. Things tend to happen in week threes. We'll tell you about that during the Insiders. But um, first of all, let me give you a snapshot of the week ahead because I've you know, fully recovered from my Arctic swing, which was fantastic. And I really, really appreciate all the emails that I've had at the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com. Keep those cards and letters coming um, because it really seemed to have struck a chord with many of you as well in terms of understanding our North and the Arctic and the various issues that go with it. But now we're back full on to the election campaign from here on in right to the end. And this is a big week. Let me give you a sense of what you've got in store. The insiders coming up shortly with uh, Sapria Duavetti, who is um, a liberal, Tim Powers, a conservative, Kathleen Monk from the NDP. We're going to we're going to take kind of the insider approach to the campaign to try and understand what's happening in the various war rooms and the strategy rooms that uh, that help support a leader at a time like this because there are interesting things going on and big decisions having to be made almost on a daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis. So that's today. Tomorrow is the reporters with uh, Rob Russo and Althea Raj. And we got some, you know, we had some questions from you after the last reporters and uh, we're going to try to deal with those, some good ones, and a couple of other issues because there's some important things happening on the campaign at the back of the plane, at the back of the bus, in some of the debates that are going on uh, by journalists about the way they are covering this story. So that's what the reporters on Tuesdays is all about. Wednesday, of course, is Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. He'll be back in Ottawa this week after a little holiday on the East Coast. Uh, but he still managed to do um, our podcast broadcast uh, through the last couple of weeks. Um, this Thursday, we're, because there's a debate going on, which we'll tell you about a little later in the Insiders, uh, but because of that, we're going to do Thursday, we're going to have kind of the mailbag edition, your voice, what you have to say about what's going on. Uh, there'll be a little bit from the Arctic, but mostly it'll be on the campaign. So if you have thoughts about the campaign, um, send it, send them in to the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com. Um, and you know, a, a selection will be, uh, will be picked and will be uh, the basis of our program on Thursday. There've already been a lot over the last couple of weeks, and I am sure there are going to be many more in the next couple of days. So don't be shy, send along your thoughts, not just a rant, but you know, your thoughts, uh, constructive or otherwise, uh, happy to listen to them. And as I said, we'll pick the, uh, uh, you know, a selection of them to go on Thursday. Friday this week will be Good Talk with Chantel Bear and Bruce. Uh, we're waiting till Friday this week and next week as well, because Thursdays is a debate night. Uh, and we'll want to react to, the, to that. So that's your lineup for this week. Lots of good stuff, right? Um. But let's get into the insiders now, because this is, as I said, this is a big week. 
Things can happen. Here we go, the insiders for this Monday. This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. All right, let's get right at it. Supriya is in Toronto. Uh, Kathleen and Tim are in Ottawa. Uh, You know, two weeks ago when this whole thing started, nobody was really asking the question, what would Aaron O'Toole be like as prime minister? Now, two weeks in, they're kind of asking that question. A lot of people are asking that question. What would he be like as prime minister? And what I want to get at, aside from the obvious, which would indicate they've had a good two weeks, um, aside from that, what impact does it have on the way different parties think and operate two weeks into the campaign? And Tim, I know you're sitting there all excited given the <laughs> good, good work of the of O'Toole so far. What, what impact does it actually have on your party? Uh, well, interestingly, uh, yesterday, that being Sunday, a note was circulated to people who speak about conservative issues to say, don't talk about the polls. Don't do that. Don't fall into the trap of getting too excited and gloating. So that will tell you there is a little bit of excitement. I think people who are newer to this, so the, the younger staff that are often the uh, the hardworking Denzians who get stuff done are, are more likely uh, to be enthused and pumped and want to share the joy and you want to control that enthusiasm because it is only two weeks into this but it's created an enthusiasm in the conservative party peter i think it's created an enthusiasm among candidates and maybe most importantly and it may mean nothing in three weeks this may just be a blip but there's a belief that you can win and in any organization political or otherwise the moment that you believe that you can win is the moment that you perhaps double down to try to win regardless of the other factors that are there and i don't believe and if people tell you they believe that they could win two or three weeks ago i think they were not telling you the truth peter but now that conservatives believe they can win that has empowered them for the next three weeks all right supriya what's it done to the narrative inside the the liberal party because i've heard different things over the last couple of days about the impact this could have what's your sense Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think I've been hearing a couple of different things, too. The one that uh, that I've been hearing is that, yeah, everyone's a little bit spooked. Right. And they need to essentially uh, get back down to controlling the narrative, make the message that's out there a little bit more positive, remind voters, you know, why they fell in love with Trudeau and the Liberal Party to begin with, how they're going to move the country forward and, you know, finish the fight, so to say, against COVID-19. But if I'm being perfectly honest, I've heard from a few campaigns on the ground that are suggesting that the you know overall media narrative seems to be at least somewhat disconnected from the kinds of things that they're hearing at the door and from the enthusiasm that that they are hearing now to be fair i am the the three campaigns that i that i have in mind right now are in montreal and two of them are in the gta so those are you know relatively i guess um liberal-ish strongholds if you will so that may impact it but that to me was a little bit interesting because often you know the folks that are doing the opining in media and the folks that are you know creating or help build the narrative aren't actually the ones that are doing the door knocking right they're not actually the ones that are going out and talking to voters. So that's also something that I would keep in mind. You know, one of the things I heard is that if you're, 
If it's a close race, one of the things the Liberals actually want to have happen is for people to think about, well, what would it be like Mm -hmm. if they were government? What would it be like if he was prime minister, given things he said in the past? I know they conflict with things he's saying in the present, but nevertheless, bringing all that up, that it's a good thing to have it this close. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, for I would just say this and this might sound a little cliche, but I think for democracy, it's good to have it a little bit close too, right. You want folks to actually think about their choices. You want folks to have, um, you know, in, in, in front of them, OK, these are my options. These are my options for who will be prime minister and, and who will form, form government. And that's why I think it's a little bit silly that, you know, a, a few weeks ago when we were talking about health care. Everyone was like, wow, wow, we can't talk about health care. It's like, well, why the F not? Why can't we talk about health care? We're in the middle of a friggin pandemic. We have climate change, you know, knocking down our door. And if we're not going to talk about health care in, in the middle of a pandemic, when we know that we're going to end up in a climate change, ravaged hellscape with an increase of mosquito-borne diseases, antimicrobial resistance, and like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then when the heck are we going to talk about healthcare? Ask Kim Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Kathleen, uh, I know you're sitting there smiling because you're, you know, while the two top parties supposedly in these numbers are battling it out, Day by day, the NDP keeps kind of like creeping up a little bit every day. And, you know, the uh, the, the leader, Jagmeet Singh, is, seems to be having, once again, a really good campaign. So what does this mean to your party that the Conservatives are doing much better than thought of a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, let me just back up if you'll let me for a second, Peter, and, and riff off something that Tim said. You know, the to get into the psyche of the war room, um, when a party is experiencing a lift in the polls mm-hmm. and a lift in their media narrative, that does something really specific to the staffers in there. And and Tim touched on it, you know, some people squealing with glee, other people maybe having clammy hands and, and worrying. But this is really when the war horses or the older uh, guiding forces of of, uh, the campaign are really important to kind of throw that almost wet blanket on them, if you will. I mean, I can remember a story back from uh, from 2011 when I was in the war room where we started to, it was not week one, that's for sure. It was probably late in week two, if at all, uh, but definitely by week three, the, the week that we're entering into now, where we started to get really great press, where we were on the cover of La Presse, we started to be on, on even um, uh, and we started to get, we even got a cover in uh, the rest of Canada. I think it was either the Toronto star or, or the globe and, and the poll numbers started to lift for Jack Layton and they started to lift and lift and lift. And I remember the mantra in our war room, and this was more so in week four and into week five was keep your head down mm-hmm. No tweeting because we didn't tweet as much as people tweet in 2011. It wasn't as big and don't believe the polls. Mm -hmm. That's just, we had a mantra. That's just another rogue poll. Don't believe it. And and that was really important. That discipline within the Mm -hmm. war room to, to ensure that nobody went off message or got, got their head so big that, um, that they couldn't fit back into the war room to do the work that they were supposed to be doing. So it is really like whatever's happening in, in the conservative war room is important. Um, that discipline, 
then that, that guiding hand, whoever those, you know, um, the wise uh, elders are speaking uh, to those groups, but also conversely, what you see happening in the liberal team. I mean, um, a good friend, I believe, of Sapria's, Rob Silver, was tweeting yesterday a very important reminder to the liberal team, which was, hold on, folks, as bad as you think this might be now, it ain't as bad as 20, you know, 2011. You know, there, there are worse campaigns out there highlighting the Ignatiev campaigns so and trying to, to rally those troops. But but back to quickly to your question about Jagmeet, he, he, he is running a really good campaign. It is, as I've spoken about in the past, his second time running as a national leader. So he has that sure footing. I do think that um, the focus groups that we did, you know, six months out that I was doing for private clients, you know, tell the same tale today that people like him. You know, they liked him six months ago. They like him even more now that they're seeing more of him daily. Uh, will that translate into votes? That's the question. Will that that enthusiasm for the individual, Jagmeet Singh, the leader, translate into actually more votes um, on Election Day? I love your line. About, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Really quickly, with respect to what Rob had tweeted, and he is my old boss and mentor, and I, I thanks for the shout out, Kathleen. He was not referring to the 2011 campaign. Liberals do not speak of the 2011 campaign. <laughs> he was talking Michael about who? 20, yeah, exactly. He was talking about 2015 and 2019, but I right. take your point. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and 2004, 2006, the other way, uh, compared yeah. with 2015, they, they had issues. I love your tie, your, your little story about the rogue polls, though, the uh, Kathleen, because right now, You'd have to be saying, well, I know there have been like four or five rogue polls in a row here. <laughs> but that's what we said in 2011. And they're like, and I'm like, another rogue poll, head down. You know, and you just have to do that. You yeah. have to be disciplined. I know it's hard, though. It's, yeah. I still think that for Jagmeet Singh, the, the, the test is going to be when, when there starts to be a little more push in terms of the media coverage on trying to understand how he's going to do certain things that he's saying. Um, but let's see whether that comes. The, the, the media seems occupied enough with the, uh, with the, uh, the other two parties at the moment. Um, you know, momentum plays a big role in any campaign. Can, it can have an impact on, uh, on the way things direct. The Conservatives seem to be running a, a couple of days in a row. Uh, doing doing well and then you know the protest stuff on Friday night happened and you can almost see it in the numbers that there is a, a blunting uh, uh, of some of that momentum they're still doing they're still doing well but the rise seems to have stopped at least for a couple of days as a result of that and the conservatives quite you know uh, quite uh, appropriately getting out in front of that story and saying okay we had a, some of our people mm-hmm. were in there um, but that can uh, this whole issue of momentum in a camp in a short campaign can have a real impact, Tim. Well, Peter, it's like your beloved Toronto Maple Leafs. You know they play really well in the preseason. Marner scores a few goals, Matthew scores a few goals, and they have a big lead. And lo and behold, by the third period comes, they've lost the game where they don't make it far in the playoffs. Sorry, I had to give you a dig about that, but it's the, it's the same thing. Look. To use that hockey metaphor, and Kathleen will kill me, we're early in the second period. There's a lot of game left here. So if you're the Conservatives, there are probably a couple of people who thought about how you win this now, but you have a lot of hockey slash politics to play. And I like your 2004-2006 comparison. Uh, is it 2004, 2006? Harper took a lead. Harper looked like he was going to win and the liberals threw everything at him in the kitchen sink and they won a minority to do that. Um, 
arguably Stephen Harper hadn't gained this out all the way. Aaron O'Toole is not Stephen Harper in, in many senses. Uh, I don't know if he's the political tactician that Stephen Harper is, but he certainly is less controversial than Stephen Harper. So does he jumpstart right to 2006 where a palatable option is seen with the Conservatives? I don't know that yet. I think this week is going to be kind of telling to see where the Liberals go on O'Toole, what happens in the TVR debate on Thursday night, and does the coverage start to equal itself out? And have the Conservatives contemplated any of that? Easy to score goals in the first period, but you want to have the winning margin in the third. That's going to be the challenge. And just to explain the debate issue, uh, Thursday night is the TVR debate, which in effect is the first French yep. language debate. And it, it could be critical for all, everybody on that stage. Uh, because the Quebec votes and the way they split between the Bloc Québécois and the Liberals, the Conservatives to some degree, um, is and the NDP is really uh, critical as to what the big picture may, may be. And it'll be the first time we'll see all four of them on the stage together. Uh, and, and, you know, certain conclusions will be drawn. It's the week before the all the other debates, and mainly the English language debate, uh, so uh, Thursday night is a big preview. On the issue of momentum, Kathleen, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I I think that, you know, we have to remember that we always expected with an equalization of coverage that Mr. O'Toole was going to get a bounce in the polls. Um, early, you know, and, and over the past nine months of doing focus groups on O'Toole, uh, yes, people didn't know who he was. But once they saw the message that he was presenting, they often liked it. They found him relatable. Um, I uh, I was raised in Ajax, Ontario, and he's, he's from the Durham region, and he speaks in that vernacular. Like he, you know, you almost like he seems like any guy you would meet at the grocery store and he's relatable and the policies that he's been dropping. He's been following definitely the Harper playbook of, you know, a policy nugget in the morning and then some color event in the afternoon. And he's he's really been pushing um, uh, someone's been called uh, someone has described it almost like insurgent warfare, where he's like on the left one one day and on the right the next day. And he's just been, you know, really smart at dropping policies that appeal to both sides. So I think that it's potentially possible that he peaked too early because we expected this lift in O'Toole and the Liberals haven't truly unloaded on him yet. And that's what I expect to see in the course of the next, um, maybe not in the next four days, but post Labor Day, I expect that hold to be a total dump on O'Toole and and to him really pound him to the ground. And, And the healthcare move that you saw last week was a part of that. We know that the Conservatives, their weakest points are um, on their cuts to health care. The, 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 the voters feel like they have an, a hidden agenda around cutting health care and that they generally uh, promote policies that that help Bay Street, not Main Street. So while Tool's trying to counter that with some of his messaging, we know that that is their Achilles heel. So expect to see. I mean, that's why the liberals last week also went out on their on their tax on the banks and on the um, insurance companies. Uh, this was a direct throw trying to figure out how how the conservatives would would respond to that so they are trying to blunt his momentum and 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 they'll want to do that over the next 10 days so they can go into their post labor day the time when folks really really start to focus on the campaign and run all the way to e-day you know i love kathleen i love her because not only does she try to influence the ndp campaign now she's sitting there trying to run the liberal campaign as well they're going to do this they're going to do that 
<laughs> Supriya, what, He's what do you, my team win. <laughs> Supriya, what do you make of this? You know, traditionally the liberals would at this position in the campaign, given what we're seeing in the numbers, would begin the dump on the conservatives. That's what they've done traditionally. Um, do you expect Sorry. to see that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd call it necessarily a dump more than like a lot of this stuff has just been sort of sitting out in the open and nobody has really poked around or brought attention to it. And, you know, to, to Kathleen's point about uh, the oppo dump, I, I, I guess if we want to call it that, I, I think there's also to a degree a little bit more media scrutiny. Um, I think there was a very low bar set at the beginning of this campaign when it came to uh, Mr. O'Toole. And I, I, I agree with Kathleen that, you know, I don't think anyone... Um, was thinking that the uh, polling numbers were going to remain static. I think we all expected O'Toole to get a bit of a bump. And, you know, to be fair, I, I, I expected Jagmeet to get a bit of a bump as well. But, you know, you mentioned the protests a, a, a little bit earlier into this conversation. And I think that gets to a much more fundamental issue here, which is what does the Conservative Party actually support? Um, and when you are seeing pictures of the Prime Minister you know, uh, about to be hung um, and they and people are holding signs that say Trudeau for treason, we have to ask ourselves, how the F did we get to this point in our country that a prime minister and a campaign cannot actually go about their, you know, regular campaigning because they're having events that are being foiled by protesters to the point where the RCMP and the security detail is saying, you know what, it's not safe enough to be here. None of this happened overnight. None of this happened with solely Mr. O'Toole at the helm and none of this is necessarily his, you know, sole responsibility or fault. But I can tell you when I was hosting um, here in the, in, in, in the GTA, a talk radio show, um, I was on the air for four years. In those four years, my hate mail regularly featured, um, you know, these Trudeau for treason tropes. And mm -hmm. it's something that has been used in, in conservative circles for quite some time. And I, I don't I don't mean conservative like capital C. You know, I, 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 I there's a bunch of PPCers, right, that are into that mix as well. But I think, you know, this is going to become a, a real question for Canadians because certainly nobody wants to go the route that the U.S. has gone. And if you see some of the imagery, you know, juxtaposed with what we saw in January 6th um, in terms of like angry faces and sign holding, a lot of there's a lot of parallels there. And that's very scary for a lot of people. Tim. Well, first of all, I think Supriya is related to me. She's done two how the Fs. I just go all the way, Supriya. Just belt out that F word with power and authority. That's what we tend to do. On the more serious subject uh, that Supriya's rage, uh, raised, of the rage, um, yeah, you're referencing Cheryl Gallant, the Conservative MP up along here in, in the Ottawa Valley, who had that very stupid, uh, wrong, awful image. Um, I mean, surprisingly, that's not Cheryl. Uh, that's not uncommon with Cheryl Gallant. But the problem Cheryl Gallant creates for Aaron O'Toole when she does that is the same problem she's created for every other leader when she's done something that's too extreme. Uh, it, it raises those questions that allows the hidden agenda, the, the racism, the not connected um, uh, narrative of the liberals and others to, to come out. But I, and then you have Maxine Bernier on the other side. Uh, I don't know if you saw that horrific tweet of yesterday calling the prime minister a narcissist and a psychopath. I mean, there's just 
real problems with a lot of dialogue. It's not just on the right, though. I've given you two examples on the right. The other real problem that is here, and all the leaders need to be careful with it, and as you pointed out, Peter, I was glad to see when the event in Bolton was canceled, Mr. Singh and Mr. O'Toole were quick to, to acknowledge uh, Mr. Trudeau's right to speak and how this was inappropriate, but there's all manner of data out there about the impact COVID is having on people and has had on people. And that sense of dislocation, addictions challenge. We have a very uh, vulnerable public that can be inflamed very easily. And all of these leaders need to be very responsible with that. I mean, some will argue, and I don't know if the argument's fair because I have not been at the rallies, that Mr. Trudeau is also using the rally um, while trying to quell the protesters to create a political sympathy for him, which is going to cre- create a further inflammation. It's, it's, it's serious stuff out there, and we need to see a more collective, serious approach to its management. Um, I've only got a couple of minutes left for this week, but I, I wanted to, to, to take a run at a different topic. I mean, we tend to look at, if we look at polls at all, we tend to look at the top line number with the sort of the party versus party uh, numbers, but there's a whole below the line, below the top line uh, area that breaks things down by region, by gender, by age. Um, what's happening in those below the top line numbers uh, that you've seen so far that can have an impact over these these next few weeks? Because there there's some interesting movement that I that I'm looking at at least in the in Nick Nanos's polling numbers, but they all do it. Um, so below the top line, what's important? What do you look at? What are you and your war rooms and your back rooms? What do you look at? Um, Supriya, why don't you start? Yeah, can I start? One thing that I've noticed that's been quite interesting is that younger men, uh, particularly Gen Zetter and, and older millennial men, seem to be quite attracted to the Conservative Party and to Aaron O'Toole. And in the uh, Ontario, in Ontario's last election, the Ford, well, then Ford candidate, but now Ford, you know, Premier Ford did very well with millennial men, and they did very well in terms of micro-targeting that demographic with their, uh, you know, buck of beer ads being like blasted all over uh, PlayStation and Xbox one so that, you know, and when, when folks went into to, to, to log in right there, they saw their ads. And I think that's, that's really interesting. And, I'll, and that's a, a group that I'll be very interested in and in seeing how they progress, because I think the conventional wisdom that we've heard thus far is that younger people don't necessarily vote conservative, right? It's like they're, they're, they're either voting NDP or they're voting liberal, or maybe they're voting green, whatever. But if the conservatives manage to make inroads with that, with that demographic, I think it'll make for a interesting conversation, but B it'll make campaigns going forward a lot more interesting. If we know that that group is seriously up for grabs. Kathleen. Um, I mean, you look at, uh, to answer your question, you look at all the different segments and see what's interesting there. And, uh, and Sapria has just highlighted a, a really interesting fact. I mean, one of the ones that consistently we look at obviously is gender, um, obviously age and, and education level, education increasingly being something that, that does uh, determine, this looks like it determines kind of vote choice in some, in some levels, but the gender split I'll focus on quickly because we, you know, in past uh, elections, um, we know that, uh, 
you know, a 10 point gender split means that a progressive party will end up winning. And obviously, if we can if we can convince the women to stay away in some ways from from conservatives, we you know, almost ring fence them to not even considering the conservative party. So, for instance, I ran a campaign um, earlier in the year that was just focused on on women, uh, women between the ages of 25 and 85. Uh, so yes, you know, in some were value shopper focused. These are some of the things you look for. But 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 at the same time, we basically just wanted them to make sure that they didn't even consider the conservative party. So when you target them like that, because um, it, 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 we know that in Ontario, for instance, that will make a difference overall in the vote. I mean, one other thing that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in the field right now pulling with any for any clients or doing anything like that with um, with researchers. But one thing that I would like to ask is is what is your mood right now? Because I think the one thing that's not being calculated into this election is just actually how angry folks are. Yeah. You know, I think that everybody thought the two back summer and everyone was going to be so happy. But I think that maybe the liberals and others misjudged just how frustrated Canadians mm-hmm. are. Maybe it's after the 26 to 29 weeks of homeschooling or whatever, or the fact that it looks like we're, we're going full throttle into this fourth wave and we're going to have potentially more shutdowns in the fall. That anger level, that brewing anger, I think is starting to bubble up. And I think if we don't end up seeing uh, a re-election of this government, incumbent government, it might be because of that anger level. So I don't know who can pull for that. And, you know, Tim owns a polling company. Put that on your agenda, Tim. I don't know. <laughs> just before I just before I get to Tim, on the anger point, mm-hmm. um, I got to say that, you know, I totally buy into what Tim had said earlier that, you know, COVID has put us in into a different mindset as a people. And, and some of that has, uh, has led to real anger. But there was even before COVID, yeah. and I think the liberals misun, you know, didn't didn't see this, uh, certainly the way I saw it. The feeling about Trudeau, personally, uh, uh, by a not insignificant amount of the population, is not pretty. It, it, it's deep. I mean, I saw it with his father, you know, mm-hmm. in the in the seventies, and it was that was ugly. But this is this is much worse. Uh, I don't know what it's rooted in whether it's in, uh, you know, uh, disgust of, uh, of some of his policies or his actions or his, his manner or, or just because he's a Trudeau. But it is deep. And you add that to the mix of the anger that's, uh, that's out there uh, because of COVID and, and the situation that we're all living through, um, it, it's, it's certainly not insignificant. Um, anyway, back to uh, Tim on this whole idea of uh, what you're looking at below the top line. Well, you, you, everybody here will remember in 2005 uh, when Stephen Harper hired a guy by the name of Patrick Mutart, the whole concept of psychographic polling. It sounds like a bad horror movie. Maybe it is if you were psychographically profiled, but you looked at your income, your educational interest, your age, your area code. So that is still what you bought and, and why you bought it. That is what people are looking at. So and two other points off that area codes, the, the 905. I mean, how many 
election nights, Peter, have you talked about the 905 and what's going to happen in the 905 and in and around Toronto because it's vote rich. And as Kathleen talked about earlier, there are many female voting cohorts there that the Conservatives want to get into. And also regions, but trends in regions. So I'll just one very quick example. So the Liberals in their worst election, that very well-known 2011 election, so sorry, Supri, it's left my lips again. When they were knocked into third place, they held on to Atlantic Canada. They did very well in Atlantic Canada. Their working assumption on it for Atlantic Canada is they'd be leaving this election again with around 28 seats. Right now, they're probably down to 23, 24. That mightn't sound like a lot, but if they're starting to lose support in Atlantic Canada, their bedrock, it makes it real tough to get that majority, which seems to be evaporating right now by the day. That may all change. And it makes it harder to get the plurality that you will need to be an effective minority government. So to where we were a few moments ago, this this is why this TBI debate coming up on Thursday is so important for the prime minister, too, because yeah. he's still been solid in Quebec. If Quebec starts to drip a little bit, along with Atlantic Canada and Ontario's going, not going in his direction, those trends are not good. But again, we're only early in the second period, but that's what it looks like right now. And or conversely, if he knocks it out of the park, right? Yes, exactly. Like, yeah, the, thing yeah. is, the one thing that, you know, with with if you do well in Quebec and you can reflect that to the rest of Canada, Canada moves with you. So, for instance, the Ruth Ellen Brousseau announcement yes. is actually as much about Quebec as it is about the rest of Canada. Right. You want to show strength in that province. So if the liberals can show some strength there and picking up, it will reinforce things across the country, which I which I don't think is impossible for them to do. Which all leads to the conclusion, I think, that the third week can be really Really important and you've made that point Kathleen and I think everybody agrees so this will be an interesting week to watch as was your conversation today thank you all thank you thank you you're listening to the bridge with Peter Madsbridge Loving the insiders Mondays on the bridge during the election campaign. They'll be on every Monday. Uh, I have to talk to them about next Monday because it's a holiday, right? Labor Day. Let's see whether we're going to do the program that day. I think we probably should because there's so much happening. So if they're not, um, you know, otherwise occupied on uh, the last holiday day of the summer, uh, we should probably do it. Um, want to close out uh, today's The Bridge with what we in the business call a fun fact. You know, you like to have these things by to go to, uh, sometimes to close a program, sometimes to open a program, sometimes just to fill time. Well, I wanted to do this to close the program, especially after the t- discussion about uh, various areas that the different parties would be looking at and trying to improve their vote. Well, here's one that all... Canadians would like to see happen to improve Parliament. And it's the number of women who were elected. In the last election in 2019, 98 women were elected. Remember the 330 seats. Now, 98 was the highest number ever and the highest percentage, 29%. A dissolution when Parliament ended, after all the different things that can happen during a parliamentary life, there were 100 women in the House because of two by-elections in October 2020. So that made it 
29.5%. How's the breakdown? 55 Liberals, 22 Conservatives, 12 Block, 9 NDP, 1 Green, and 1 Independent. In the last election, B.C. and Quebec each elected one-third women, 33.3%. Ontario was at 31.5% women. A group called Equal Voice wants a minimum of 40% of those elected this time to be women or gender diverse. Now, we'll be tracking uh, once all the nominations are done, and we'll let you know just how many women have been nominated across the country. Now, here's another note. It's actually a question to you, and it's the way we'll, uh, we'll close out today's uh, edition of The Bridge. For all the political power that Ontario has in a federal election, and you've heard it countless times, especially if you don't live in Ontario, you're sick of hearing it, about, you know, if you do well in Ontario, you're probably going to do well in terms of the country because there's so many seats at stake in Ontario. So for all that power, all that clout that Ontario has, who was the last prime minister elected when that person ran for a seat in Ontario? Hands on the buzzers. Give you five seconds to carefully consider the answer. Who was the last prime minister elected from Ontario? Do, 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 do. I should have been the host, right? I should have been the host for Jeopardy. Absolutely. But you know what? I never even got a phone call. I know you find that hard to believe. But I didn't. Anyway. The answer is, those of you who said, Lester Pearson, you're right. What year was he last elected? And what was the writing? That's a tougher question. Well, it's not a tougher. Half of it's easy. There was an election in 1965, and he won his seat. And his seat was in Algoma East. It's interesting because we've gone all that time, more than half a century since, without a prime minister from Ontario. It's kind of like the Leafs never winning the Stanley Cup for more than half a century. So what about this time? Well, you've got two, you count them, two leaders running from Ontario. Annamie Paul from Toronto Centre. She's not going to win an election. She's going to have enough trouble winning her own seat. And she's working hard at trying to do that. But this guy might win. Aaron O'Toole. He's from Durham, as Kathleen mentioned. So if he won, if he became prime minister, he'd be the first prime minister from Ontario since Lester Pearson won in 1965. So add that to all the considerations you have. Do you want a prime minister from Ontario? Do you want the Leafs to win? I know you do. All right. Time to wrap her up. 
tomorrow, the reporters. Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Thursday, your comments. It's your chance to say something about the election campaign and a few nice letters about the Arctic tour. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. That's where to write. And Friday, good talk with Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson. So we got a full week ahead. Lots to talk about. Looking forward to having you with us. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been The Bridge. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again in 24 hours. (laughs) 